what time is it? Time to get smart. It's McIntyre in the morning with Doug McIntyre and Terry Ray Elmer. Good Tuesday morning to you, 6.07 the time. Talk Radio 790-KABC. Royal Oaks in for Doug McIntyre. And the student protests continue. T-Ray, apparently uh, a lot of young folks are very concerned about what Trump's going to do to illegals, to gays, to Muslims. Uh, they're taken to the streets. And our mayor, Eric Garcetti, had a, had a fascinating response to uh, the whole idea about lawbreaking. Let's, let's listen to, to some sounds. Apparently somebody got this on a cell phone, so mm-hmm. it's a little bit scratchy, but, but here you go. This is a great moment. We have to make sure we don't break too many bottles during it. Don't break too, too many, many too laws. Many, what is he thinking? What kind of a role model? Is he going to end up on Mount Rushmore? Yeah, with the that? You know, right not at, too pleased Right under him. his giant head, don't break too See, many laws. Well, and one of those too many laws that were broken was a police officer got the crap beaten out of him and somebody else's, another cop's gun was stolen. I think that's a, that's one of the laws that was broken during this episode last week. I think we got a new headline for Los Angeles. Los Angeles, don't break too many laws. <laughs> exactly right. Well, now if we go to the second city in Chicago, the mayor there, he's standing firm, too. He He's he's wanting to break one big law, namely the whole sanctuary city deal. I mean, Trump has, has said you know, very clearly in the campaign, no more sanctuary cities. There's a federal law that says if you get a hold of somebody and they're breaking the law, you got to hand them over to the immigration authorities. And Rahm Emanuel is saying, nope, let's listen to him. To be clear about what Chicago is, it always will be a sanctuary city. To all those who are, after Tuesday's election, very nervous, there's filled with anxiety has been spoken to, you are safe in Chicago. I wonder if the president-elect is going to have uh, the mayor arrested. Uh, Ed Lee in San Francisco said the same thing. Yeah, same same kind of deal. Now, he's promised to take away their federal funding. Can he actually do that? I think so. I mean, why not? The mm-hmm. federal funding is at the discretion of the federal government if they're going to defy the law. I mean, they are really breaking the federal law. But in the last eight years, the Obama administration hasn't really minded. So uh, who knows? We, we could uh, the, the hammer could come down. T. Ray, are you watching this new... Um, Kiefer Sutherland show designated yes. survivor. Oh I my love god! It. I love it. So you know then, and and folks, if you're no, watching, I'm, no, I'm binge watching it. So you may be ahead of me. But well, you know, I'm I actually am alert, current. Is that what you're saying? I'm totally current, but, <laughs> okay. but I'm going to talk about something that happened early on, folks. If you haven't heard this show, Kiefer Sutherland is no longer Jack Bauer. No, uh, breaking legs uh, and and uh, taking names. He's the president. And the reason he's the president is he was the lowest cabinet level guy on the totem pole. Well, was he was um, not agriculture secretary, but like, oh, what is it, like the National Parks kind Health of guy. Health services something or something. like that. Some, see, he's, number, yeah. he's the, on the bottom. And so he's assigned to, to stay a few miles away from the Capitol during the State of the Union. Of course, the terrorists blow up the, the Capitol and everybody's dead in the except cabinet. Him. Except So he becomes the president. And, but he's kind of liberal, and so what happens is everybody's really cranky with the Muslims in America because they suspect they blew up the Capitol, and so the mayor, the governor of Michigan— Minis- is it, Yeah, Michigan, yeah, that's right. —is, is uh, going after the Muslims, and he won't stop, and so Kiefer has him arrested. Right. Yeah, so, the, so why can't Trump arrest Mayor Rahm Emanuel if he ignores federal law? I suppose politically it could be a bit of a firestorm. Mm-hmm. But anyway, so that's... Well, and, and he had martial law declared in Michigan, right? Yes, exactly. And then hauled the, the governor off. <laughs> oh, and the funniest part of it, too, is half the people that he's trying to govern and half the people don't want to listen to him because he had actually been fired by the president that morning. Yes, yes. Lots of good plot twists and designated mm-hmm. survivor. So um, the thing about the students, you know, we've been re- talking over the last several days about how the students were, you know how the Elizabeth Kubler-Ross talks about the five stages of dying, yeah. denial, and anger. Well, the students have gone through the same thing, disbelief, crankiness, and so on. But the good thing is that the professors postponed their exams. The University of Michigan professor postponed on an exam because the students complained about their very serious stress level. Same thing at, at Yale. The students couldn't function. A bias response team at Skidmore College decided that writing Make America Great Again on dry erase boards amounted to performing radicalized targeted attacks. So it, people are taking this really
really seriously. University of uh, Connecticut professor, uh, English professor, told students she understood if they needed a personal day to deal with Donald Trump being elected president. <laughs> uh, the student at UCLA says, uh, it feels like we're cheated somehow. He's a horrible person that doesn't deserve the title. So the students are, are not having a good time with this. I, read, I heard, too, on the way in this morning, another story about how people are calling their um, pastors and their rabbis and their therapists asking for extra appointments as well. As a matter of fact, we're going to have Dr. Drew on uh, later go. on in the morning. He's going to help us uh, cope with this problem. But there's so much, there's so much anger, shock, disgust, sadness. Uh, students at Columbia, one of them was, was uh, quoted as saying, I can't believe this is happening. This is catastrophic for women, for minorities, for our country in general. Student Sophie Neiman said, I've seen people weeping in the streets. I just cried into my friend's shoulder. My civil rights Aww. have been compromised, according to Adam, Adam um, Snyder. Now, uh, these Ivy Leaguers, they're, uh, they keep it on a high plane. There's a Cornell student, and he, he, he was yelling, how the F is he winning? What the <laughs> F? I mean, I'm glad they've got those Ivy League well, vocabularies And we, going. remember, we, were, we, all, we all had the same reaction. Remember as we were sitting there on Tuesday night? <laughs> yeah, at the Everybody, smokehouse, right. We're just like, wait, what, what, what's happening here? And, and in Los Angeles, hundreds of LAUSD students uh, who said they were angry and fearful about what President-elect Donald Trump uh, would do in terms of immigration. They marched out of class the other day towards City Hall, demanding that Los Angeles leaders protect them and their families. Uh, students from East Los Angeles high schools, including Garfield, Roosevelt, Wilson, Lincoln, coordinated the walkout to appeal to Mayor Garcetti uh, and other politicians to declare the county a sanctuary for all individuals and communities being targeted by President-elect Donald Trump's white supremacists, patriarchal, homophobic, transphobic, xenophobic, and Islamophobic agenda. Uh, so this is, uh, we're, we're talking about some serious mobilization. I guess, T. Ray, when they accuse Trump of being transphobic, that means he doesn't like transgender folks. Okay. Um, Where are they getting that? I don't know. He, he said, "Chris Jenner can use, uh, uh, Caitlyn Jenner can use whatever bathroom she wants." <laughs> That's right. No, I think, and you saw uh, Trump on sixty Minutes the other night. You know, Leslie Stahl was trying to get him to uh, to talk about the, the issue of gay rights and so on. And he he said, "Look, it's settled. You know, it's settled. Are you going to appoint a, a judge that'll overturn that?" I don't think. Now, so. Now, let me ask you about that, Counselor, because he said that the gay rights issue is settled in the Supreme Court mm -hmm. because it's already been ruled on. Right. The abortion Roe v. Wade has also been settled in the Supreme Court and ruled on, but he said that can be changed. You're exactly right. Ha, ha. The point is courts defer under the doctrine of stare decisis, defer to existing precedent, and it's got to be a really big thing before they change it. But they may change it. And as you point out, he's perfectly prepared to toss Roe versus Wade into the trash can, but he's claiming he's not prepared to toss gay marriage into the trash can because, oh, it's already settled. So you're the, right. He's, he's being inconsistent. Okay, He just you. needs to go to law school, you know, and uh, <laughs> learn all of these principles. <laughs> Time is 6, 4 to 15 uh, on Talk Radio 790 KABC Royal in for Doug. We are going to shift gears now because we are delighted to uh, be joined by Professor Sai Prakash. She is a law professor at the University of Virginia. He's author of Imperial from the Beginning, the Constitution of the Original Executive. And uh, Professor Prakash had a fascinating op-ed piece in the LA Times uh, a couple of days ago about what to do with Donald Trump's lawsuits. Professor, welcome to KBC. How are you? Uh, great, uh, Royal. Great to be talking to you today, and thank you for the warm welcome. Well, you're quite welcome. And uh, as I understand it, uh, somebody has taken the time to add up all the suits pending against Donald Trump and his companies, and uh, apparently there are about 75 of them. And that's kind of a problem, uh, given the fact that he's uh, going to be a busy guy starting January 20. So uh, what, what is your take on what should be done about that? Well, Royal, in the op-ed in the L.A. Times, I suggested that Congress ought to pass a statute that basically freezes the existing suits in place and, uh, you know, basically uh, tolls the statute of limits. As you know, as a lawyer, civil actions have to be brought within a particular period of time where they become stale and they become, uh, you can't bring them after that point in time. Um, and 
the idea is let's sort of wait until Donald Trump's no longer in office for these suits to go forward against him. And, and then to make it fair, let's also make sure that he can't sue anybody for, you know, uh, civilly while he's president. And so it's, it's meant to sort of freeze everything in place, make sure that uh, people have time to bring their suits after he leaves office. And the whole point of it is, is to make sure that the president is focusing on the public business and not his private finances, his private concerns. And I guess one reason we're aware of this problem is the high-profile story from years ago when Bill Clinton was president. Uh, Paula Jones pops up and sues him and says, hey, you sexually harassed me before you were president. And Bill says, hey, I'm really busy, folks. Uh, give me a break and asks the judge to just put it on the shelf or dismiss it. But as I understand it, the U.S. Supreme Court 9-zip said, sorry, Mr. President, uh, if the framers wanted to give you uh, a pass like that, they would have and they didn't. And so he had to give his deposition. That's exactly right, Royal. Uh, this case went all the way to the Supreme Court. And, and the president just said he asked for something reasonable. He just said, look, um, I'd like to postpone this until I leave office. And the court said, we've read the Constitution. We note that Congress has various immunities, but there's nothing in the Constitution that gives you civil immunity while you're president. And so the case has to go forward. They they predicted that the case wouldn't take too much of the president's time. That prediction turned out to be false because, you know, the, the Clinton versus Jones trial was the was the basis for um, various charges against the president later on. But but the point is, you know, that was one suit that took a good deal of the president's time. We have many more suits now, either against Mr. Trump personally or against uh, his, his corporations. And um, even if the Constitution itself doesn't grant the president this temporary immunity from suit, uh, I think Congress can grant him such immunity. They've already done so for members of the armed forces. And I'm just suggesting that they ought to do something similar to the president with the, with the added proviso that he also be um, checked in bringing suits. It wouldn't make sense for us to say, Mr. President, you don't have to worry about being, you know, hearing these lawsuits and participating in them for four or eight years, but you can go ahead and sue a bunch of people uh, while others can't sue you. And so it's got to be reciprocal. We're talking with, say, Krishna Prakash. He's law professor at the University of Virginia. And as I understand it, in terms of lawsuits that get filed against a president for stuff he's doing while he's president, uh, I think there was a Nixon-era precedent where the, the president won that fight. So that, that is it true that he, if somebody does anything that's remotely related to his presidential duties, he, he's just got a, a complete pass. He's immune from any kind of suits. Yeah, the Supreme Court decided uh, while, you know, in the case involving Richard Nixon after he left office that any of the president's officials act, official acts couldn't be the basis for a damage action against the president. And so the, the, rule, the rule after this Nixon case and the Clinton case is for official acts, the president is immune. For private acts, he's not. And then there's got to be, you know, some cases will pose difficult questions about what was private and what was public. Um, but, you know, in the case of Paula Jones, no one claimed that that was an act as president because it had occurred beforehand. And in the case of Nixon, it was clear that he had done that. He had fired someone while he was president. Um, so I think you're right that, uh, you know, if, if there's an, a question about President Trump's official acts, he'll be officially immune. If it's about his, you know, it's about his Trump Tower in New York, that's not an official act. And uh, he would be liable now, and, and the suit would go forward under Clinton versus Jones. And so that's why there might be a need for Congress to address the situation. And I, I'd like to add, well, it's not the first time we've had presidents who were litigious. Uh, and this goes back to, to George Washington. In my book, I describe how Washington threatened suits or brought suits against uh, tenants of his or people who were squatting on his land. And so he actually was uh, somewhat of a, a litigious person while, while serving as president. But the country has gotten you know, bigger and there's more responsibilities for the president. And so what Washington did I don't think can, can, you know, should, should, uh, should continue. I don't think we should allow our presidents to be enmeshed in their private concerns. So the, the, while, thing, that, the, so the thing that's facing us right now, of course, is November 28th. There's a trial date uh, in the San Diego federal court, uh, the Trump University suit, where the plaintiffs say it was all a big scam. You know, he's trying to give us, get us to pay 35 grand, basically, just for an infomercial. Uh, and, and I think Daniel Petricelli, uh, the lawyer who's representing Trump, has filed a motion with 
the court saying, hey, let's put it off until after the inauguration. And the other side is saying, give me a break. He's not going to be any less busy after the inauguration. Maybe he'll be busier. How do you think the judge is going to handle that one? That's, that's tough for me to say. I, I have sympathy for the notion that it's not going to be any easier for Mr. Trump to, to participate after the election, I'm sorry, after the inauguration rather than before. And I don't know if Mr. Petrocelli has made some specific argument as to why he'll have more time afterwards. Um, but, you know, the being president is a full-time job. You don't sort of, you're not able to, to sort of say, I'm not president for this next hour while I watch this football game or while I participate in this trial. So, I just don't. I don't understand the argument that he's going to have more free time as president than he than he does now. Yeah, no, I, I, think I understand he's going to be quite busy getting up to speed. He's never served in in government before, but I think he's going to be getting up to speed for the next you know one or two years. Yeah, it's going to be like a Berlitz total immersion program. Now, what about the women uh, who were coming out of the woodwork and saying uh, he groped me and he sexually harassed me? Yeah, there was one just came out on Saturday. Oh, another one? Yeah. That's interesting, because where I was headed with that is that a couple of weeks before the election, they were, like, 11 had stepped forward, and Trump had what I thought was an interesting strategy. He said, doggone it, everybody who says this nasty, terrible stuff about me, after the election, I'm going to sue them. When I heard that, I thought to myself, is he really planning on suing them? I think he just wants to discourage more women from coming forward, and I think it worked if that was a strategy. But, uh, Professor, do you really expect him to try to uh, go on the offensive and file libel suits against these women now that he's president? I, I, I mean, I, <laughs> I would be surprised, Royal, if he did that. I think you're right that he wanted to deter others. I also think he wants to, you know, he wants to suggest to his supporters that these are allegations are false, and the way you do that is by saying, I'll sue you for defamation, right? If, right. if he doesn't suggest that, then people think, well, why aren't you suing them for defamation? And that's, you know, uh, Mr. Trump is, you know, uh, is, is, is very rich, but, you know, he's also very litigious, and I think it's not only the problem that he's being sued, but the fact that he threatens uh, countersuits and actually does countersue when he is sued. So I think in the the Trump University case, he's countersued, um, and so he's both the plaintiff and the defendant. And so I I I very much doubt that he'll bring those suits. I think they were more for uh, consumption of the public, and as you said, perhaps trying to get other people to not bring those charges. Okay, so Krishna Prakash, law professor, at University of Virginia. Thanks for uh, sharing uh, part of your Tuesday with us. Appreciate it. Thank you, Royal. All right, take care. 624 The Time, Talk Radio 790 KABC. Royal Oaks in for Doug McIntyre. When we come back, some folks want to ban Thomas Jefferson. Stay with us. And Bill Thomas, how are things looking on the roads? Is McIntyre in the morning with Doug McIntyre and Terry Ray Elmer? 707 The Time, Talk Radio 790-KABC, Royal Oaks, in for Doug McIntyre this Tuesday morning. Hey, check out our new website, kbc.com, for news as it happens, updated by CNN and KABC News. You can also listen live and download podcasts of all of our shows so you never have to miss a minute. Plus, pictures and videos from behind the scenes at KABC. Check it out today, kabc.com. So we are one week past the Trump miracle to uh, help us uh, sort it out, a little post-mortem. We're delighted to welcome to the program Lindsay Walters, Republican National Committee spokesperson. Lindsay, how are you today? Good morning. It's great to be with you. All right. So now tell me the truth. Did you see it coming? I, I mean, I know everybody's got to be upbeat <laughs> and optimistic leading up to an election, but um, did, was this in your crystal ball? Here at the RNC, we did our projections based off of data modeling, and we absolutely knew that there was a path to 270 heading into the final 72 hours, where it's really important that you have a ground operation in place that can get out the vote. We knew what the unallocated was and what percentage of that Mr. Trump was, or President-elect Trump was going to need to get in order to be able to cross that threshold. And so there is definitely several paths going into the weekend where President-elect Donald Trump could come out as the winner, which is exactly what we saw. It was a large part in the get out the vote efforts, his message resonating. You had the campaign crisscrossing across the United States, speaking to voters, and then you had hundreds of thousands of volunteers and staffers on the ground in these battleground states out knocking on doors. 
in the last week alone, we knocked on over 9 million doors, and that's volunteer knocks alone, just volunteers who knocked on 9 million doors, bringing it to a total of over 24 million doors knocked to date that cycle. And so that's a tremendous amount of effort in the final 72 hours to be out and getting those undecided voters, those Hillary Clinton change voters, to the polls to vote for Donald Trump. And that's what we saw on Tuesday. Lindsay, you know, I, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Royal. Lindsay, when I, I, reading from your briefing yesterday, you also credited a very heavy social media campaign. We did. We had a tremendous small-dollar fundraising effort as well as you mentioned from that briefing the clicks through email. We were able to take the voter files and the data that we had. This is the first time that the RNC has made a significant investment in data, and we saw it pay off this cycle. We took the investment we had made in data and we were able to hand those files over to our digital guys who then worked with Facebook and Instagram and different social media platforms to go ahead and match to voters to be able to target them. And on Facebook, we had an upward match rate of over 80% where we were able to take, for example, you took 100 voter files and we were able to match over 80% of those to target those voters who were on Facebook to be able to get them out to vote. And that was part of this get out the vote effort. We monitored where voters were. We tracked them to see what their habits were. And you were able to watch a voter who you courted. And then as soon as they went to the polls and they cast their vote, whether it be early or absentee, you then knew that that was a banked vote and you focus on someone else. And so it really allowed us to be able to target individuals that we needed to target to be able to turn out on election day or to get to vote early. Lindsay, you know, the point you're making and T. Ray's question, they're really interesting to me because I was noticing throughout the campaign, if there was one thing that you'd hear about as often as jokes about uh, Donald Trump's hair, it was jokes about the Republicans' ground game being totally inadequate. All we heard, it was like this article of faith in the media, the Democrats' ground game is going to crush the Republicans. And I never really heard much by way of rebuttal from the Republicans. And now, since the election... Uh, we, you know, Ryan Priebus has been talking about it. You, you're mentioning it. So it sounds like the Republicans' ground game wasn't wasn't such an amateur hour after all. It wasn't at all. And we absolutely were out there as the RNC promoting our ground game and pushing our ground game and telling, because this is the first time in the party's history that Chairman Priebus made a decision to implement a permanent ground operation. So we had staff on the ground since 2013, which was well over a thousand days longer than Hillary Clinton and the Democrats. We were out registering voters, out making connections. We, instead of parachuting in staff six months out into a battleground state, we were able to build these relationships on the ground, focus on states in which we needed to be in and have an individual in a state who represented that community. Whereas in the past, you would have taken someone from a different state, placed them into juke six months to sprint to the finish line or three months. And instead, these were individuals who were on the ground, who had made an investment and were building relationships within that community since 2013, and we saw that translate into our get-out-the-vote effort and what we were able to do by having a permanent ground operation. And one thing I would point to, you when you look at the technological front and when they say how the Democrats are leading the Republicans, yesterday there was a great quote from Howard Dean about how the Democrats are now playing catch-up, and you look, too, the Democrats are out knocking on doors using clipboards. The Republicans were out using several walkouts, but that data instantaneously goes from the conversation that the volunteers had with the voter at the door into the files back here at the RNC, and we're then able to process that data, whereas the Hillary Clinton campaign was out with clipboards having to go back at night and enter in all of the data before it got processed. Well, you say that was a great quote from Howard Dean, Lindsay, but I have to say it's not as great as that quote from Howard Dean from a few years ago. (laughs) What was that? It was, yeah! I think that was greater. I think you'd have to admit that. So, Lindsay, let me ask you about the Jim Comey deal. Uh, Hillary Clinton's on the uh, conference call with her big million-dollar-plus money raisers the other day. And she's saying, it's Comey who did it, right? We had momentum. We were stopped cold. And in a, in a way, you can kind of believe, I think she did have some momentum 11 days before the election. D- Donald Trump was was a little bit on the ropes with you know, women uh, coming forward making his allegations. And then blammo, it was electrifying that Friday when that letter came out. Do you have a sense of of whether that was a big factor in terms of affecting the ultimate outcome? 
it was one of many things. There were several things, whether it be Clinton Inc. or the Amos Comey, there were several things that were working against Hillary Clinton. But at the end of the day, voters were not, they did not want a continuation of the status quo. The country wanted a change, and they viewed President-elect Donald Trump as that change agent. They viewed Hillary Clinton as a continuation of the Obama administration. And a lot of voters were sitting here today thinking about where they were eight years ago versus where they are now. And they're not content with where they are today. They don't feel that they're better off today than they were eight years ago. And they wanted to vote for someone who was going to bring them hope and change. And that's what they saw in President-elect Donald Trump. And so the FBI investigation was just one of many things that Hillary Clinton had working against her as she headed into Election Day, and she struggled all along with a momentum and enthusiasm gap. You looked at key portions of the Obama coalition that she struggled with. She was unable to turn out across the battleground states. And so all along, this was a culmination of several different things that led to the end result we had. And this Donald, President-elect Donald Trump's message resonated with the American voters, and they voted for the change they wanted to see in this country. We're talking with Lindsey Walters, a Republican National Committee spokesperson, or a Twitter handle is at L. Walters. You know, Donald Trump was just amazing in the sense that uh, he had such controversy swirling about his, uh, his statements, and, and he also had this amazing populist message. I was kind of thinking, and I'm curious as to your thoughts, what if he hadn't won the, uh, the, um, the nomination? Well, let's say it was Cruz or, or Rubio or, or, or Jeb Bush. Do you think they would have done about as well against Hillary Clinton, or do you think they would have done significantly differently, up mm. or down? That's a good question, but you look at what President-elect Donald Trump was able to do. He was able to tap into a portion of the American electorate that Republicans have struggled with in the past, and that he was, his message resonated. You had a lot of voters who were unhappy with where our country was heading. They feared for our national security. They didn't like how things were being handled both at home and offshore, and they wanted to take a step to have their voice be heard to enact change. And that's what they saw from Donald Trump. Donald Trump was an outsider, and the American people are tired of Washington, D.C., and the political politicians, and they wanted someone who was going to be an outsider, bring a fresh look to the government, and who was going to make big changes that would benefit all Americans. And that's what they saw in Donald Trump. And so his message from early on in the primaries all the way through the general election resonated. You look at a state like Wisconsin. Wisconsin hasn't voted for Republicans since 1984. You look at Pennsylvania. And Mr. Trump was able to capture both of those states that historically are not Republican states. It's interesting to uh, to think about the difference between Trump and some of these other candidates. In a way, anybody would have a natural advantage because the American public since the 50s has never given the same party the White House three times in a row, except George Bush after Ronald Reagan. So that's just the rule. That's the template. So the Republicans had that going for them. But for the last four years, we've been hammered. We've been reminded constantly that the Republicans are kind of in a death spiral, that the, that the groups that traditionally are against them, women, gays, young people, um, and uh, Latinos, African-Americans, they are an increasing, each of those groups are an increasing chunk of the electorate, and they are increasingly against the Republicans. So it's almost like the Republicans were told, you've got no chance unless you move left and try to reach out to folks. And yet, Donald Trump defied that conventional wisdom. He, he did increase uh, the vote from his predecessors among all of those groups, uh, and yet I don't think he did it by going left. You're absolutely right. President-elect Donald Trump saw a larger turnout of Hispanics, African Americans, and Mitt Romney did, who came out and voted for him. The college-educated women as well, he had numbers that were higher than what were to be expected. But again, it goes back to the fact that the country today, when you sit here and look at where we are versus where we were eight years ago, you have a, whether you're a mother, a father, a student, a granddaughter, a grandson, you're looking and thinking, where is my future? Where's the future of my grandparents, my children, my parents? And you're sitting here today thinking you need a change. And that's why 
what the American people voted for. They voted for the change agent that they saw in President-elect Donald Trump. They voted for the outsider who was going to come in and be a president for all Americans, and that's what they wanted. And so you saw this with his, and his message resonated. President-elect Donald Trump crisscrossed this country, and his message resonated with the voters, and they showed up on Election Day to cast their ballot for the change they wanted to see in our country. Now, the 60 Minutes interview a couple of days ago was, was kind of interesting. I, I wonder if you think it might signal a, a more flexible Trump. I mean, sort of he dropped some hints about Obamacare, a couple of elements are okay, and immigration, well, I'm going after the hardcore criminals. I mean, I think a lot of people have the sense maybe now that Trump behaved the way he did in the campaign because he felt it was necessary to do that to win. And, of course, it turned out he was right. But now he might change his approach and his style because that pugnacious, combative style may not be necessary in his mind and could even be counterproductive. What do you think? The Donald Trump that we saw on the early hours of Wednesday morning is the president we are going to see. He was very gracious. He laid a path forward. He wants to be a president for all Americans. He reiterated that on Sunday evening in a 60-minute interview. He looked straight at the camera and said to those who are protesting, stop it if you're protesting in my name and this violence. And that is the president that President-elect Donald Trump is going to be. He wants to be a president for all. He wants to get this country back in a position where it's working for all Americans, not for just select groups. And that is that we are a country that is moving forward and that's bringing jobs back and that is secure. And he's going to do that. He's going to be a president for all Americans. And what you saw in the early hours on Wednesday morning is the president we are going to see over the next four to eight years. Do you predict that uh, there are going to be ongoing investigations of Hillary Clinton? I mean, you know, in the debate, he said, you know, if I were president, you'd be in jail. Do you think Trump will now have kind of a hands-off attitude to avoid looking like he's vindictive against a defeated foe, kind of, you know, putting his boot on her neck and just let the FBI do its thing and and, and then react? How do you see that playing out? And also, what do you think of the chance of Obama pardoning her? The Clintons are under an investigation for several things. Obviously, the Clinton Inc. for emails, that's something that law enforcement is going to deal with. Mr. Trump, the other day, he had a wonderful conversation with Secretary Clinton after she conceded. He is going to be focused on the issues that are at the heart of the American people. He's going to focus on how he can get this country back on track and moving in a direction where we're bringing jobs back to American soil and that we are protected overseas. And that's going to be his focus. Do you think that there was this uh, secret Trump uh, factor in the, in the polls? Uh, you may remember here in California, uh, we had an African-American mayor of Los Angeles, Tom Bradley, and he ran for governor in the 80s, and everybody said he was going to win because he was way up in the polls. And then he lost to George Duke Majin. And the political scientists crunched the numbers, and they said, you know what, there was this Bradley effect. The citizens who talked to George Gallup and the other pollsters didn't want to be perceived as racists, so they said, yeah, I'm going to vote for Tom Bradley. Uh, I would think a lot of people might have been embarrassed to say I'm going to vote for Donald Trump when the day before he was being pilloried in the press for, you know, blasting a gold star family and and et cetera. Do you think that was a factor in sort of fooling people in the polls? I don't think it was a matter of fooling people. When you looked at, as I mentioned earlier in the interview, if you looked at the voter scores and the modeling, we were able to tell where Mr. Trump was heading into Election Day and that he was within a certain percentage point And if he was able to turn out the unallocated, he would achieve the number he needed in order to capture that state. So all of these voters were accounted for. There were definitely individuals who had never been involved in the process before that had come out and volunteered, but they were a known entity. You knew who they were. They were new to the party, but they had been added to the voter files, to the rolls, and they did exist. But I think he, Mr. Trump was able to tap into portions of the electorate that historically Republicans haven't or that weren't engaged in this process and that have now become engaged. They have previously never gone out and knocked on a door. In this cycle, they said, you know what, I can't sit on the sidelines any longer and watch this go on. I need to go out and make it a difference. And I'm going to go knock on doors and volunteer my time to make phone calls. And that's what you saw. You saw Mr. Trump... President Trump was able to mobilize voters who previously had not been overly involved in the process. 
we're hearing stories about uh, it's kind of like a knife fight behind the scenes in the Trump administration. Rudy Giuliani and uh, and yeah. John Bolton are squaring off because they won't both want to be Secretary of State. I have a hard time f- f- seeing them in West Side Story, you know, <laughs> Ru- Rudy and John Bolton. But uh, p- past administrations like Ronald Reagan, he wasn't uh, he'd been governor, but uh, he was a little bit out of his element in terms of 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 a lot of the political infighting. And James Baker fought against Ed Meese, and and, and so there was a lot of turmoil. Do, do you see that in the Trump administration? The Trump administration right now, it's obviously the transition is going on. You've seen there were several announcements on Friday. They announced our chief of staff, Reince Priebus, or our chairman, Reince Priebus, to be the new chief of staff. The transition is heading forward. They're working on inauguration, and the transition will go smoothly. All right. Well, we really appreciate your time, Lindsay Walters, RNC spokesman. Uh, we'll talk to you again soon. Thank you. Thank you. All right, take care. 724 The Time, Talk Radio 790K ABC. Royal Oaks in for Doug McIntyre. When we come back, women are cussing a whole lot more. I think T-Ray can explain it. Bill Thomas, how are things looking on the roads? Okay, who is this? It's Peter Tillman. On the next Peter Tillman at 10, you'll find out why Mike Pence went to court to protect his emails. And also, if you were on an adult website recently, there's a good chance you were hacked. Can you say that again? There's a good chance you were hacked. Oh, dang it. That's exactly right. We'll talk about that and more starting at 10 right here on Talk Radio 790 KBC. I heard that music. I thought I was supposed to introduce Doug Llewellyn. <laughs> hey, T-Ray, um, interesting study by the Cambridge University Press. The uh, usage of the F word by women has exploded by 500% over the last two decades. What what the heck? What the, <laughs> what the heck? I mean, really, is there any explanation for that? And listen to this. Women used to say uh, the S word four times more than men. That that number has doubled. Uh, the, the lead researcher of the study says equality between men and women is one of the key reasons why females are using the F word more and more. Well, As I, a woman, do, yes. do you think that's correct? Well, I, I wouldn't put up with someone saying, don't say that it's not ladylike. <laughs> that's what you mean. Wow, well, I they, think we're just giving them more reasons to say. This could be true. It's very possible. Uh, you, you know the comic John Mulaney? He has a wonderful mm-hmm. routine. He said he's, he used the word midget, and somebody says, you can't say midget. That's hate sw- That's worse than the N-word. And he says, no. We're talking about it here, and we're using the word midget, and we can't even bring ourselves to say the end words. I don't think midget is worse. So we don't have to rank the words that ladies are using now, but that's interesting. Uh, You know, I guess the uh, society has changed. 7.30 the time. Talk radio 790K ABC Royal in for Doug. Call now. Call me if you're interested. What's your phone number? 800-ABC-KABC. Ask for the phone number, not the phone letters. That's 800-222-5222. Thank you. That's the sound of the police. That's the sound of the time. Talk radio. 790-KABC. Royal Oaks in for Doug McIntyre this Tuesday morning. Hey, one hour from now, call her 5 at 1-800-222-5222. We'll win a pair of tickets to Mamma Mia at the Seagrestrom Center for the Arts in Costa Mesa, Wednesday, November 23rd. 1-800-222-KBC. One hour from now to win. Tickets furnished by the Segerstrom Center for the Arts. I wonder if it's a Segerstrom. Are they going to perform it in Norwegian? Is, <laughs> I don't think actually so. Actually, should be Swedish. Because didn't the ABBA people, they didn't speak English. I think they just learned the uh, the songs phonetically. I didn't know that. I think that's true. Uh, so uh, Well, if it wasn't, you've just made it so by yeah. announcing it. Yeah, it's going to be a meme. Uh, we are delighted to be joined right now by uh, our friend Craig Lally. He's president of the Los Angeles Police Protective League. Uh, Craig, how are you today? Good morning. Pleasure to be on your show. Well, thank you, and uh, serious stuff uh, to talk about in terms of the protest. But before we get to that, I have to say, your Twitter handle, it's, it's, a, little, it's a little tough. It's at L-A-P-P-L underscore L-A-L-L-Y. Does anybody ever tell you that's, that's difficult to, <laughs> to memorize? Have you thought about simplifying? Well, I just thought he'd bring no. that up out yeah. of the clear blue sky. You know, uh, honestly, you're the first. <laughs> well, thank you for that. Well, it's like spelling Reince Priebus. I mean, who could do it, right? <laughs> kids, would fa- kids would fail a spelling bee. All right, so the serious topic we got here is that uh, a lot of folks bent out of shape about the uh, Trump victory, and they're not holding it in. They're actually uh, demonstrating, and uh, it, it appears 
uh, based on what uh, what you folks have been saying at the L.A. Police Protective League and, and the news reports, uh, that uh, it really wasn't very safe for the officers. The, we didn't have sufficient staffing uh, to respond to the protest. Tell us about it. Well, um, I've, I've heard that they didn't even have an operational plan for this event because I think the department thought there was no possibility that Donald Trump would win the election, and that's where we went sideways right off the, right off mm. the bat. There was no preparation. There was really no pre-planning for this. And then we, we were caught uh, behind the curve, and then we were trying to catch up ever since. And, in fact, uh, we've seen some reports uh, that police were, were in danger. There were some uh, plainclothes police officers who were trying to effect an arrest, and they wound up uh, getting attacked uh, by people on the street. Uh, what's your understanding of all that? Well, that's true. Two different incidents. Once on the freeway, some motor officers were uh, surrounded by about two or 300 protesters. The problem is, well, they were sent out on missions, these officers, to, uh, to control the crowds and to, uh, and to arrest people, and they were sent out with missions with no resources to back them up. And, and that's, that's what was my point, that we, had, we didn't have enough deployment and enough officers out in the street to effectively arrest people uh, in the first initial days of the arrest. Subsequently, we got better at it because, you know, we started deploying more officers, but the first couple of days was a disaster. And it didn't help that Mayor Eric Garcetti had <laughs> a kind of a weird message. Let's listen to his, uh, it's three or four seconds, but it packs a punch. I think this is a great moment. We have to make sure we don't break too many laws during it. We Wait, what? Yeah, say what? Did not too many laws. What was the mayor thinking, uh, Craig? Uh, talking about making sure we don't break too many laws. Is he just trying to pander to the uh, to the people unhappy about Trump? Well, I don't know what he's thinking. I didn't. I haven't had a conversation about that uh, comment that he made. But it really infuriated the police officers. They felt that uh, they they also were questioning. Well, why did the mayor say that? We're trying. You know, it's dangerous enough out there being a police officer. So, uh, the killing of police officers across the country are up over 50% in shootings. You know, this job is dangerous enough, and, and we can't have people advocating for, you know, bre to breaking laws. And, and also, it just endangers us and endangers the public. And, you know, the, as you suggest, police officers have been under attack all year. We, we've seen studies confirming this so-called Ferguson effect that police are holding back, uh, that crime is skyrocketing as a result. And it suggests that the mayor's comment uh, makes you think he, he just doesn't get that. Well, yeah, well, I, 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 you know what, I, I don't know if he understands how dangerous this job is. When you, when you go out in public and, and tell people that... Um, you know, um, uh, that it's it's okay to break laws. I, I don't even know what laws he's talking about. It's okay to break. <laughs> so, um, so, but it just sets out, it sets out a bad message to the police officers because they, they've been calling me for a week now. Uh, a lot of it has to do with the comment, this particular comment that you just played. Uh, and they're frustrated. They, they, they're just, uh, it just, this job is just way too dangerous right now. Well, um, how was the officer who was smacked around, Craig? Uh, he's okay. I talked to him uh, several days ago. Actually, I talked to him the next morning. Uh, he's okay. Uh, um, he, he's fine. Uh, he wasn't admitted in the hospital or anything. Uh, but, you know, that, you know, it's just uh, frustrating. He was just trying to do his job. Uh, he saw a suspect uh, spray painting the uh, police administration building, mm -hmm. uh, and, and he went over to effect an arrest, and then he was uh, basically 30 or 40 people come up behind him and then just... Uh, lynched the suspect the suspect got away and we never you know we couldn't locate the suspect mm -hmm. and uh yeah he was uh he was assaulted what about the gun the guns uh some uh, during the altercation um some uh protester uh, grabbed the gun and ran off with it oh my god wow all right craig lally president of the la police protective league with a, a really swell twitter handle lappl underscore l-a-l-l-y appreciate you sharing a part of your tuesday with us uh, pleasure to be on your show again. Thank you. Thanks. 745 The Time, Talk Radio 790, KABC, Royal Oaks, in for Doug McIntyre. When we come back, what is a Trump Supreme Court going to look like? Stay tuned. Yeah, let's stay tuned for Bill Thomas. How are things looking on the roads? 751 The Time, Talk Radio 790, KABC, Royal Oaks, in for Doug McIntyre. Happy Tuesday to you. So what about the Supreme Court? A lot of people were angriest about the Trump victory in connection with the Supreme Court because of, of the huge influence. You know what? In the short run, anyway, the impact is not going to be huge. Remember, several months ago, uh, conservative Justice Scalia died. Obama tried to replace him. Republicans said, I don't think so. 
And because they control the Senate, they could refuse to bring the matter to a vote. You got to kind of feel sorry for Merrick Garland. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Poor guy. He's just, you know, always a bridesmaid. In limbo. <laughs> so the Republicans took a lot of crap from the Democrats and the mainstream media who said, hey, you know, read your pocket copy of the Constitution. The president nominates. The Senate gives advice and consent. He deserves a vote up or down. So the Republicans had a gamble. Uh, do they approve Merrick Garland's? Uh, you know, he's 63. He's left to center, but not, you know, not much hugely uh, and not very young in terms of allowing the president to influence, you know, for several decades. Or do they do what they ended up doing, namely no vote and run the risk that if Hillary won, she appoints, you know, Doogie Hauser, a much more liberal <laughs> and a much younger person to the bench? Well, we know they won the bet. So what's the payoff? Well, immediately, it's not going to be very big because, you know, Trump's going to appoint a conservative and it'll just replace a conservative. Scalia, that keeps the lineup the way it was before. So what's the lineup? Well, first, you got four votes that are absolutely reliable left of center votes. They never deviate on the big politically charged cases, abortion, gun rights, religion, immigration. And they never depart from the liberal line, Ginsburg, Breyer, Kagan and Sotomayor. So what does that mean? It means they only need one more vote, and they have a liberal 5-4 majority. One more vote is all they need to make sure there are no big conservative rulings on gun control and abortion and so on. And do they have that one liberal vote? Well, you be the judge. Chief Justice John Roberts, supposedly conservative, appointed by George Bush the Younger, he saved Obamacare twice. And what about Anthony Kennedy? Remember, he cast the deciding vote for Bush in that famous Bush versus Gore decision in 2000. Ever since then, he has been a reliable liberal vote on a lot of key issues, like gay marriage, like restrictions on the president's power to wage the war against terror, affirmative action, abortion. Supreme Court has had numerous opportunities in the last five or six years to turn right, to restrict abortion rights, to end affirmative action. They have never done it. Because Roberts and Kennedy regularly, one or both of them, joined the four liberals to produce a liberal five-justice majority. So what's the effect of the, the Trump presidency? Well, again, for starters, you're just going to replace a conservative with a conservative. Now, when you get to the second Trump appointment, it's going to get more interesting, but it, it depends on who he's replacing. If the second appointment is replacing one of the rock-solid conservatives, Clarence Thomas, Sam Alito, it doesn't change the dynamic at all. No increased danger to abortion rights or, or gay marriage or, or, or those types of issues. If Trump gets a chance to replace a liberal, Ginsburg, Breyer, Kagan, or Sotomayor, it certainly helps the conservative cause, but you still have the three liberals who may well be joined by two swing votes, Roberts and Anthony Kennedy. So, if it's Kennedy or Roberts that he replaces, that means the four liberals can still win with a five to four vote if the remaining swing vote, Kennedy or Roberts, is there. So bottom line is only when Trump gets three replacements could he really have an impact on the direction of the court. And statistically, that is really unlikely. So the people who were just uh, uh, super unhappy about the Trump presidency because of the Supreme Court should relax. 7.55 the time, Talk Radio 790 KABC. Royal Oaks in for Doug McIntyre. Stay with us. 7.58 the time, Talk Radio 790 KABC. So, T. Ray, you're going to love this. You know, Bill Cosby's on trial in mm. Pennsylvania, and his lawyer's saying, oh, he's blind, and his memory's gone, you know, cut him a yeah, break. Yeah, yeah, now, yeah. Now, they're arguing over whether to release his contracts and business papers, and his lawyer says, well, he may perform again, so, you know, this would impair his ability to compete and so on. And the other people you are saying, are you, del- both ways. Hey, are you delusional? And you know what his lawyer said huh. in response? Well, yeah, look at Stevie Wonder and, and Ray Charles. Oh, for they God perform without benefit of sight. Are you kidding sight. me? I kid you not. Uh, <laughs> you notice I said I kid you not as opposed to something else that some women might say. Nah. According to studies. All right, folks, stick with us. When we come back, Lisa Guerrero from Inside Edition with an amazing story about dying at the dentist. Stay with us. Eight fifty-one. The time. Talk radio seven ninety K A B C. Royal Oaks in for Doug McIntyre. Happy Tuesday to you all. Hey, one hour from now, caller three at one eight hundred two 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 five two two two. We'll win a pair of tickets to see Sergio Mendes. 
a celebration of 50 years of Brazil at the Redondo Beach Performing Arts Center on December 9th. Call 1-800-222-KBC one hour from now to win. Tickets are furnished by RedondoConcerts.com. So, T. Ray, now that the election is over, you're probably looking for something else to worry about. <laughs> right? How about an asteroid striking the Earth and just, you know, wreaking all sorts of havoc? Now, you say, oh, no, this is pie in the sky or asteroid in the sky. Asteroid in the sky. Um, you, but I say, no, NASA is concerned about this enough to hold a drill, a big exercise. NASA plus Federal Emergency Management Agency, you know, where Brownie used to work, yeah. FEMA. FEMA. So um, they had a big effort, an exercise, to consider the potentially devastating consequences of a 330-foot asteroid hitting the Earth. They had a simulation projecting a worst-case blast wave by an asteroid strike in 2020 that could level structures across 30 miles and require a mass evacuation of the Los Angeles area and cause tens of thousands in casualties. So are you worried yet? A little bit? Now you're making me nervous. Yeah. So uh, they're they're reminding us that, of course, we saw the movie in 1998, Armageddon, uh, a bigger fictional threat. Uh, A ragtag crew was sent on a mission to drill into an asteroid and set off a nuclear bomb to avoid a global catastrophe. Bruce Willis was the star. Remember, Mm -hmm. he said to his crewmates, the United States government has just asked us to save the world. (laughs) And it worked out. It was sort of a happy ending, except for... for, uh, Poor Bruce Willis. Uh, there was a spoiler alert I missed there. So <laughs> you, don't, anyway. you don't do a spoiler alert for a movie that's 20 years old. Well, some people might be coming out of a coma, Randy. It sounds like you don't have a whole lot of sympathy for comatose people, do you? They didn't miss much if they missed that movie. Well, all right. I thought it was kind of fun. It was fun. Um, so then uh, we've got this simulation. And the reason they projected the strike in 2020 is because they, they wanted to build a large spacecraft and ram it into the asteroid... And the spacecraft takes two years to build. It's called a kinetic... But they better get busy. Yeah, they got to get busy. That's what now they're doing the exercise. So it's a kinetic impactor spacecraft. And then another year for it to fly to reach the asteroid, because you don't want all the explosion happening right here in the no. atmosphere. No. So this is... Uh, I, I'm glad they're worrying about this. It's not just... Uh, uh, J- it's JPL, uh, Department of Energy, the Air Force, and Governor Brown's Office of Emergency Services. This is really serious stuff. Uh, they tell us that a million asteroids have the potentials to strike Earth. Only 1% have been discovered. Uh, did you know there's an asteroid day every June 30th? It's the anniversary of the biggest <laughs> no. space-related explosion. But you're a newswoman. <laughs> In human history, an asteroid strike in Siberia in 1908, 100 feet in diameter, it exploded uh, about 35,000 feet up and flattened tens of millions of Russian trees, it's probably probably why they became communists, across 800 square miles, and it was like a medium-sized hydrogen bomb, several hundred times more powerful than the atomic bomb dropped on Hiroshima. So, one more thing to worry about. 8.54 8.54 The Time, Talk Radio 790 KABC, Royal Infra Doug, stay with us.